This message is entitled Historical Interpretation and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. A third principle in the interpretation of the Word of God is the principle of historical interpretation. By that, we simply mean what would the historical recipients have understood by the statement. The Bible was written in a specific historical setting. Forty different authors wrote 66 books over a period of 1,600 years from three different continents, many different cultures, and the book is interwoven in history. We are 2,000 years removed, almost, from the latest of those writings. It is our responsibility to leap back over those 2,000 years and more into their historical setting to find out what they would have understood. And we need to carefully guard ourselves against transferring the author from the first century down to the 20th century. Now that's another one of the problems of paraphrases. They take the text and give little attention to the actual words that were used, but rephrase it in our cultural idiomatic expression. It would be a whole lot better to leave it in a literal translation as it was written, and then in the process of application find out what the interpretation meant in that kind of a cultural setting. Then we won't lock it in to one particular idiomatic expression. We need to steadfastly resist the temptation to foist a 20th century translation or idea onto a 1st century writer. That's what is wrong, for example, when a writer takes 2 Corinthians 6.14 that many, many men have used to defend ecclesiastical separation, namely, wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. So that the Baptists use that to defend why the GARB or the CBA ought to come out of the ABC. And the Presbyterians use it to defend why the Orthodox prayers and the Covenant prayers and the Faith prayers and the Bible prayers ought to come out of the Presbyterian U.S. Now, before you misquote me, and I lose my job, I didn't say they shouldn't come out. But I'm saying historically, 
That's not what that passage was talking about, and that ought to be very obvious, because there was no IFCA, CBA, ABC, GARB, or any other of those groups in that day. And Paul was not challenging the church at Corinth to come out of the World Council of Churches. Well, that didn't exist until 1948. What he is talking about is their immersion in idolatry. And all it takes is a little background study on Corinth to know how thoroughly enmeshed they were in idolatrous practices. And the unclean thing that he is talking about is not the World Council, nor is it the unsaved husband of an unequally yoked team, but it's the idol to whom they turned for protection in their society. Now, there may be applications to it today, but oftentimes you'll find a Christian marriage counselor will race, first of all, to 2 Corinthians 6.14, when a believer and an unbeliever are about to be married, and say, Wherefore, come out from among the bees, separate, set the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and so on and so forth. Now, if that passage is saying anything about marriage, then the succeeding verse in verse 17 is saying that if you are married to an unregenerate person, that you are to immediately and decisively become divorced. And that's more than most people want to say. Because if that's what it means, then Paul is contradicting what he said in 1 Corinthians 7, where they asked him that very question, he said, remain in the state in which you were called. So the fact of the matter is, the verse is saying nothing by way of interpretation about ecclesiastical separation. It is saying nothing by way of interpretation about believer and unbeliever being together in a marriage. It is talking about the Corinthian problem that caused them to separate from Paul because they were united with idols. So Paul, in the context, is making an impassioned plea to be reunited with them, and the only way he's going to be able to be is if they quit worshiping idols. That doesn't mean that there cannot be application of that truth down to the day. There is a principle that two cannot walk together unless they be agreed. And I don't know how two people can effectively enjoy marriage together if the central thing of their marriage, their relationship to Jesus Christ, is not one. But if you're going to counsel somebody on marriage, go to a passage that's talking about marriage. 1 Corinthians 7. And there he tells you very plainly, marriage is to be in the Lord. You can take it from there. We then need to look at the historical setting of the passage. Turn over to Matthew 10. And keeping one finger in Matthew 10, turn over also to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. In Matthew 10, if we take as our text, verses 5 to 7, it says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now look at Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now you notice in Matthew 10, he's talking to the 12, and in Matthew 28, he's talking to the 12 minus 1. And in each case, he's giving them a commission. Only the recipients of the commission are diametrically opposite in the two passages. In Matthew 10, he specifically says, Do not go to the Gentiles. Do not go to the Samaritans. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Matthew 28, to the same group, he says, Go ye therefore and teach, disciplize all nations. And the word nations is the same word as Gentiles or people. So he's saying the opposite thing to the same group. Now, a liberal prof in an Eastern seminary spoke in chapel one day, and he took these two passages. And he said, here's a good example of the growing up of Jesus Christ. The growth in his messianic consciousness. That when he first started his ministry, he was bigoted. And he said he only came for the Jews. But as he matured in the Lord, he got a broader viewpoint. And he understood that his ministry was to be not just for the Jews, but for all mankind. And so by the time he gets to Matthew 28, he says, Discipleize all nations, all peoples, all the Gentiles. Now that is a possible grammatical interpretation. It has certain problems with it, however, that are insuperable theologically and historically. For the man obviously ignored the progress of revelation between chapter 10 and 28, which is historical interpretation, and he also obviously ignored what the rest of the scripture says about Jesus Christ and his sinlessness and his deity. So, to not make the same mistake, go back to Matthew 10 and applying what we've already applied, let's look at it historically. Before I do that, let me make one other statement. Between Matthew 10 and 28, something very dramatic happened. In Matthew 11, the nation rejects the king. In Matthew 12, the king rejects the nation. In Matthew 13, the Lord no longer speaks to the Jews plainly, but rather he speaks now in parables in order that they will not understand and believe, he said. Rather hard term. And so he speaks to them in parables outside, but then goes inside the house and takes his disciples in and explains the parables to them. And then in Matthew 13, he gives to them the mysteries of the kingdom, the things which were not heretofore revealed, but only then revealed. That is, how is the kingdom program going to be developed by God between the first and second advent, something that was never anticipated in the Old Testament? 
And then after he completes that, in Matthew 16, for the first time in the entire word of God, he says anything about such a thing as church. I will, future tense, build my personal church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that between Matthew 10 and Matthew 28, some very dramatic historical things have happened. Matthew takes the whole book to tell you about it, practically. John tells you in one verse. John says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even as many as believe in his name. Now that, in essence, is what Matthew tells you historically in most of his book. So when you come to Matthew chapter 10, you begin, and when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, and he put the twelve there for a reason, by the way. I don't think that includes you. He gave them, notice the pronoun, power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Pretty all-encompassing. Now, in case you missed who he was talking about in the first verse, he repeats it with a little addition in the second verse. He says, now the names of the twelve apostles. So now you know the disciples he's referring to are the apostles, and they are the twelve apostles. Not any apostles, but the twelve apostles. And in case you still feel you're one of those, he names them the first Simon, and in case your name happens to be Simon, he clarifies this is Simon who is called Peter, brother of Andrew. Now that kind of gets it down historically. Pretty hard to worm your way in there. And Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, who had a brother John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, in case you were still sleeping through all of that, in verse 5 he says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, into any city of the Samaritans enter not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now what was the message they were supposed to preach? Notice they weren't to teach it, they were to preach it. There's quite a difference. Preaching is declaring or announcing or heralding. Teaching is didactically instructing. And as you go preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now you don't really need a seminary education to get that message. Just one sentence. Just go around announcing it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that was what they were told to do. Jesus Christ in his incarnation was limited. He could not be everywhere at the same time. And so he chooses 12 people to announce something. To go 75 miles by 120 miles, the breadth and length of Palestine, and tell the Jews, only the Jews, 
that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why tell them? Well, they're the only ones who knew anything about it if they'd been reading the major and minor prophets. And he wouldn't have to explain anything about what the kingdom was. He'd have been explaining it all the way through the Old Testament. All they needed to know now is it has drawn nigh in the person of the king. Now, how are they going to believe that in the following context? After all, Edersheim tells us that there were 64 people at least in the lifetime of Jesus Christ who professed to be Messiah. And you remember, not even John the Baptist was too sure, and he was the one who introduced Jesus. But when it came down to the real nitty-gritty of it, and they were about to take his head off, the disciples of John went to Jesus, they asked him, are you the one that we're waiting for, or is there another that we look for? And Jesus said, you tell John that I do thus, 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 and thus, from the Old Testament as was prophesied of him. And he went back and told him that. And John said, it is enough, go ahead to the proceedings, and they lifted his head. Now, when they went out, they could not go out saying, Paul said, Peter said, Matthew says, Mark says, they just didn't have it. So in the transition period of the early days of the church, they had to use the inferior method of signs. Signs authenticated by the Holy Spirit internally. And so he gave to these twelve power to heal all manner of sickness, all manner of disease. Now, we've got some healing evangelists today who apparently think that their name comes under one of these twelve. And so they claim, verse 8, after all it says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, and then they skip the next one, raise the dead, cast out demons, and they skip the next one, freely ye have received, freely give. And then they skip the next one, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your purses because they have three Cadillacs along with them, nor a bag for your journey, neither two coats, and they skip that too. Because you see, they only take from the passage what they want to support what they believe. They're not interested in what it says. If there were truly a healer today who was honest, you know where he'd station himself? At the Los Angeles County Hospital, and he'd empty that thing out. But he's a fake. And that's why he doesn't go there. Because Jesus said to those who were having this power that there would be no sickness that would pose any problem for them, and it wouldn't be the faith of the individual, it would be the power that God had given to them. Because there was no faith in those who were denying the message they were bringing, they were denying it. And so he gives them now what they are supposed to do for this very short term of service. Quite different from what you do to present the gospel. You see, if you were commissioned with those 12, you wouldn't have to worry about going out in August and raising support. You wouldn't need to coach. Or shoes. Some of you don't need any anyway. You'd be dependent on just getting enough from house to house for the shortness of the journey. And it wouldn't take very long for 12 people to go 75 by 125 miles. You go to every house, make the announcement, your mission is through. If they receive you, fine, go in, eat with them, carry there. If you go to the next house, they won't receive you, shake the dust off your feet, go on to the next place. See, there's nothing here about sharing the gospel. There's no similarity to the way we share the gospel. 
and in what he was talking about here. And then somebody comes along and, oh, how many like to latch on to verse 19. Be not anxious, however, what ye shall speak when you come to an action group, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. And they forget all about the first statement. But when they deliver you up, He's not talking about preparing for a devotional or a message. He's talking about being brought before the council. Don't be threatened ahead of time as to what's going to happen there. When they deliver you up before the council, I'll give you the next step that you ought to take at that point. But I've heard preachers get up and say, after all, God said, you know, that I'll give to you in that hour what you shall speak, and so they actually stand in the pulpit and wait for the Lord to give it to them, and then they begin to talk. And the content of their message is just about as full as the content of their head, taking it out of context. And I suppose that there's as many phrases in this passage taken out of context as any passage in the Word of God. But there was a historical setting here that needed to be considered. Now, a factor that's very close to historical interpretation is cultural interpretation. And we mentioned in the last hour that there are four contexts of a passage and that you have to look at the cultural setting. The historical setting is the setting that has movement in it. So that in one portion of the Word of God, something may be commanded which is not even relevant in another portion of the Word of God. In one portion of the Word of God, they are commanded to offer rams and bullets and turtle doves and so on and so forth. And in another portion of the Word of God, to offer those things as religious observance is sin. So you see the historical progression in the interpretation of the Word of God. You go back and see to whom was it written, when was it written, what has happened since it was written, was it conditional, was it exclusive, so on and so forth. But when you come to the cultural context, you have not the movement of history, but you have a local situation. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Cultural interpretation is relative. And there are some things in the Word of God that are relative. There are practices that we do not practice today, that they practice then. But there are always principles that are eternal that govern the practices. Now look at chapter 11. Paul says, Be followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. And I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know, as you're keeping the ordinances, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaved. For if the woman be covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. 
For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man, neither the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have authority on her head because of the angel. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man and the Lord, and so on and so forth. Now, back in verse 3, God gives the principle. And he gives you an order of the economy of his administration. He says, Christ is in subjection to the Father, man is in subjection to Christ, woman is in subjection to man. Obviously, this is not a subjection of inferiority to superiority, because Christ is not inferior to the Father, yet he's in subjection to the Father. And woman is not inferior to man, though she is in subjection to man. But for the purposes of the economy of God's government, he has sovereignly established it this way. Now that is an enduring principle. That's not culturally conditioned. Some people have come along, the women's lib, and said, well, you see, Paul lived in a culture in which woman was nothing. And therefore, in that kind of a culture, Paul said this. But you'll notice that when Paul says, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over a man, he does not appeal to his culture for that principle. He appeals to creation. Man was not created for woman, but woman for man, and that Eve was in the deception, not Adam. And generally speaking, women, therefore, do not make good teachers of doctrine because they operate basically by their heart, and men operate by their head, supposedly. There may be some doubts on both sides. But generally speaking, this is the nature of a makeup. That's why a man is incomplete without a woman, and a woman is incomplete without a man, barring some sovereign providential intervention. So that God said it's not good for a man to be alone. Why? Because he needs the heart of a woman. He needs the compliment that she is to him. Now God's Paul says, from creation ordained it this way, not from first century Corinthian culture, but from creation. So when the women's lib comes along today and say, well, we've come of age, no, they haven't come of age, they've retrogressed. Now, how did they demonstrate this principle in that culture? Well, it was shown one way by the dress that they wore. And a faithful Jewish woman wore a veil over her head and down under her nose, so that all that was visible of her was this portion of her head, because a woman was not to be looked upon by other men. A woman was reserved for one man, her man. Now, when a woman didn't do that, when she removed the veil, she was giving evidence she was in submission to no one. She was a rebellious woman and may well be a prostitute. So he says, if you are a good woman, you will dress like a good woman. And if you're dressing like a bad woman, then you're not demonstrating God's principle of submission to your husband. If you are saying to the world by your dress that I'm available for any man that comes along, then you've got a problem. 
for the life of me, I cannot understand, by the way, girl hitchhikers along that same line. I hope to God you won't get yourself caught in that kind of a situation. To me, what they are saying is, I want somebody to rape me. And I sometimes wonder what girls think men think in response to what they wear and do. But that's Josh's area, so... I'll let him talk there. I can assure you that there's one way you don't demonstrate your submission today, and that's by being a member of the women's web. Now, there may be other ways you do demonstrate it or don't demonstrate it, but you are obligated to carry out the principle today. Culture is relative, but principles aren't. So don't relativize the absolutes and don't absolutize the relative. Keep them both in proper perspective. Now, in the same passage, he gets tied up with another thing that some of you guys have problems with, apparently, in verse 14. I was speaking some time ago in a church, and a man came up to me afterwards, and he says, you're guilty of pollution. I've been charged with a number of things. That would have been the first time I was charged with that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, during your sermon, he said, you defended some long-haired friends of yours down in California. And I said, and yes. And he said, and they are guilty of pollution. They're the kind of people that pollute our society. I said, well, I, I'm interested in your strong statement. I wonder what your support of it is. He said, well, the Bible says so. Well, if I had a good verse from the Bible to support my theory like that, I believe that uh, I'd really land on it. Where is it? He said, well, I don't know where it is, but it's in the Bible. So, you know, if I had such an important verse, I believe I'd know it and I'd underline it and read. Even the Jehovah's Witnesses have enough sense to do that. And so I found it for him and showed him the verse. <laughs> And his eyes lit up and he said, there, see, I told you it was there. I said, yeah, remember, I showed it to you. I said, could you tell me what comes before the statement you quoted? Well, I don't know what comes before, but I know the Bible says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. I said, let's read the first part of it. Does not even nature itself teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair? I said, you know, when I first used to interpret that, I thought nature would obviously mean creation, and so that if a man let his hair grow and a woman let her hair grow, a man's hair would never grow as long as a woman's hair. So creation teaches you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Then I met an Indian one day who had a ponytail down below his feet, and I came to the conclusion a man's hair would probably go pretty long if they let it go. So I decided I'd better get back to the scripture and see what it said. And the word nature here is phusis, and Paul uses it nine times. And it has the idea of the nature of things. Not nature by creation, but nature by custom. 
And the context defends that because in the succeeding context, verse 16, but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So as a member of the body of Christ and a member of a local church, I am to be sensitive to the customs of the churches. And I'm not just to completely ignore what my brothers say. And the principle laid down in Scripture is I am to be modest if I am a woman. I am to be moderate. I am to be temperate. I'm not to be an eccentric. I'm not to be the one who is the first to try the new thing or the last to leave the old thing. Most of you are on the former problem rather than the latter problem. Not too many of you will be guilty of being the last to leave the old, probably the first to try the new. So you know which end your problem is on. But we are never to portray our nuttiness. Our outward demeanor ought to be in keeping with the hidden man of the heart made beautiful by the Holy Spirit. But it's not my job to decorate your outside. It's your job to work on the inside and mine to work on your inside. So that God says, by way of principle, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Why? Because that is what is going to make the difference ultimately outwardly. So I got a letter not long ago. This particular one had a picture of my secretary on the front, together with a few guys showing students who were involved in the school, and she had a abbreviated dress on above her knees. And this man charged me with being responsible for lowering the standards. And he said, let's hold the standards high, which could have another could have another interpretation. And so I wrote to him, I said, Brother, I want to do just that. And so you'll help me out a great deal if you'll send to me the chapter and the verse which gives the divine length of the hemline. And I guarantee you, I'll enforce it. The fact is, only men give that divine length. God hasn't given it. And the fact is, it varies, because pictures of my mother as a blossoming 17-year-old were with a granny dress on, of all things. Anything above the ankle was unspiritual, so by that test, most of you here today would probably be unspiritual. But the fact is, there is a cultural relativity in it. How far does that carry you? As far as the Holy Spirit, using the principle making beautiful the hidden person of the heart allows you to go. But most people have never even considered the Holy Spirit when they go to buy a dress. There's another principle, and that is that I am the temple of God. I was standing in front of a Bible Presbyterian church in Greenville, South Carolina one day where I was a member and my landlord was an elder in that church, and a fine Christian man. And he was finishing his last cigarette that morning before we went in. 
I said, come on, Jim, let's go on in. And he said, oh, I, said, I want to finish this. You go ahead and go on in. And I said, why don't you bring him in with you? And he looked at me. What? Bring this in there? Don't you know that's the temple of God? You know, of course, our choir sings, the Lord is in his holy temple at all, the earth keeps silence before him, and so on and so forth. We're quiet, we're in the sanctuary of God now, don't talk, don't do anything else. So I said, well, Jim, you know, I had the idea that you had that thing sticking in the temple right now. <laughs> you know, it was the last cigarette he ever smoked. Not because now he had gained another stack of blue chips in heaven because he had given up the filthy habit. <laughs> but because all of a sudden it dawned on him who he was. I'm God's temple. I'm the place on earth where God manifests himself today. Makes a lot of difference what I do, where I go, what I say, what I see, what I hear. This is God's temple. And when people realize that principle that is eternal, It'll revolutionize their practices in any culture. And then I don't have to play God for other people. I don't have to try to fence them in where God hasn't done it. But I can have a tremendous confidence that if somehow I can get them to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, and I can get them to plug in these mind renewers, Romans 12, they will be transformed by thinking right. You are what you think. Some of you heard that before. So you do have cultural interpretation. And it's not always easy. And so you have to go back and find out what is relative, what is absolute. Don't absolutize the relatives and don't relativize the absolute. Get the absolute principle down to your local situation today. We've given you an example of the progress of history from Matthew 10 and Matthew 28. And we've given you an example of cultural situations. By the way, one thing I didn't say there, you might still be left hanging. You guys won't know what length to cut your hair here if I don't finish this out. If you go back to Bob Gundry's book on New Testament backgrounds, which recently came out, you'll find out that in Paul's day, the custom was that they had hair short cropped, like a number of you have, and they had a beard. Now, in the other class, there was a true Palestinian, but I don't see any here. They had a beard, and they had short cropped hair. That was a typical Palestinian. And anybody that had long, flowing hair as a man, he was called a dandy. Now, you can fit that into wherever you want to fit it in today. But they had long hair. Now there was another time in history when if you didn't have a beard, you were considered to be rebellious. And by that, 
standard. There's only one or two spiritual men in the group here. They said, if God wanted you to have a clean-shaven face, he wouldn't have put any hair on your face. And so the fact that you're shaving it off is a sign of your rebellion. Well, you see how ridiculous it becomes to try to set up a list and be God for everybody. Isn't it beautiful that God makes us all so different? Some of you are almost bald, and some of you are a long way from it. And there's a lot of difference between us. But God says somehow or another, the Spirit of God, when he is really at work in the heart of a person, can come through an exterior and can beautify it and can change it from culture to culture. So that was their culture in that day. And I take it we have different ones today. We are not to be extremists. We are to be moderate. We are to recognize we're the temple of God. Exercise the principles. Now, the passage that we mentioned earlier in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18 is a good example where you don't necessarily have the cultural situation or the progress of revelation, but actually an historical setting or background. And maybe what I ought to do here is make some book suggestions for studies in this area. As novice interpreters, forget about buying commentaries. Buy tools. Commentaries, frankly, in my mind, only ought to be used by people who are sharp enough to understand the languages to check them out if they're right or not. I would basically stay with the tools. As a believer priest, you are adequate to go to the Word of God following through these procedures. So what you need is information that will help you bridge the geographical, sociological gaps, the linguistic gaps, and so forth. What's going to help you to do that? Bible dictionaries. We've got a lot of them today, and they're great. Wycliffe, the new Bible dictionary, Unger's Bible dictionary, so on and so forth. If you want something more extensive but not quite so new, is the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia is good. And then get all the cultural, secular works you can find that are written about that day. And there's some good buys today. For example, Will and Ariel Durant, uh, they are agnostic, that's true, but they've written the story of civilization in about ten volumes, I believe, now. And you can build a lot of good background works. And if you'll get the background of Rome, the background of Corinth, It'll help you tremendously. I know of nothing that helped me more in Corinthians than two years of study in the background of Corinth. And it really opened up that book. And one of the books in uh, Will Durant is uh, Christ or Caesar. That's the background of Rome. And then you have another one that's called The Life of Greece. And that's tremendously helpful. Get background books. Get Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias. And then we always recommend to the students, the one book you buy after you get a Bible <laughs> is W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary of Words. used to be in four volumes, now it's in one, $12.95 or $13.95 for the Thumb Index through Ravel. He takes all of the English words in the Bible and under that gives you the Greek words that are used that that English word translates. For example, in the word receive. You'd have decamai, to welcome or to seize upon or to grasp, and you would have lambano, to take or receive, and you would have paralambano, to take to oneself or to embrace, and so on and so forth. They would show you the passages where these are used and show you what they mean. 
probably the greatest help that I know of for an English reader, not a Greek reader. W.E. Vine, B-I-N-E, Expository Dictionary of Words. I'd get a good book on Bible study, such as Oletta Wald's book, W-A-L-D, The Joy of Discovery, paperback, or Inductive Bible Study by Irving Jensen, put out by Moody Press, Inductive Bible Study. Oletta Wald's book is a summarization of Robert Trainer's book, Methodical Bible Study, which is much more difficult, but some of you will find that challenging. Stay in that kind of a book. Get the dictionaries, the encyclopedias, the Bible atlases, the Bible geography, the Bible history. Buy everything you can buy by Edersheim and the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, the temple and the social customs of the Jews and so on and so forth. That kind of thing will do more to help you to be an adequate interpreter of the Bible than all the commentaries in the world. Now that's not to say that I hate commentaries, it's just to say that as novice interpreters you do better to buy tools and really get down to in-depth study of the Word of God and have the joy of discovery that is there for you.